Dear Father, how incredible your promises are in Scripture. You will state in a few words an entire millennia of history to one man or to one nation. And those promises, Father, are just as certain as they are after they have taken place. They are just as certain in the, in the beginning as they are in the end. And uh, when we sit on this side of history, after it's already happened, Father, we can see it as certainty and take it for granted, not realizing, Father, that those who heard the words in the first day had just as much reason to take them as certainty. And, Lord, it's uh, such an encouragement as we study your word in, in Ezekiel or any prophet when we can see how faithful you are to your word. That is, you say in Isaiah that it will not go forth and return to you without having accomplished what you have set forth. And we quote that often, Father, forgetting that what that means is that all has been determined, all will happen, all is according to your purpose. And that when you say it, it is true, never to change. And Father, we know that that is uh, both cause for uh, sober consideration as well as cause for joy and celebration. Uh, We must be aware, Father, of what you've asked of us, even as we are so aware of what you've asked of others. And Lord, we ask that as we think about how others have responded to your word, that we would also be thinking about how we should. We pray all these things, Father, expecting you to reveal yourself to us tonight. And in the name of your Son, amen. All right, back to chapter 35 of Ezekiel. Last week, uh, I mentioned that the restoration chapters of Ezekiel uh, roughly will parallel the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that? That if you want to think of the first half of this book as something of a demonstration of the old covenant at work, God giving promises, making consequences for not keeping the covenant, etc. Well, then that would also apply to the second half. The second half of this book is really an illustration of the Abrahamic covenant being carried out. A covenant that had no conditions, and God was going to fulfill it regardless of behavior. So Israel's sins under the old covenant brought about things like banishment from the land, their loss of peace, their loss of prosperity. But it was God's faithfulness under the Abrahamic covenant that ultimately provides for Israel's restoration. And it's that restoration that we now begin to study. And that restoration addresses the same three areas of blessing in the Abrahamic covenant that were ultimately lost because of the old covenant. And I'm throwing a bunch of covenantal teaching together here that's not easy to do in an intro, so I'm not expecting you to catch it all now. It'll make more sense as we go. But the simple way to understand it is this. God said to Israel, in the Abrahamic covenant, you'll have a people. He said to Abraham, you'll have a people, you'll have a land, and you'll have a blessing in that land, a posterity, an inheritance. And those three things are the things God is bringing to pass for Israel now in the promises of Ezekiel. And they all are a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But because of their sins under the old covenant, past generations of Israel have lost access to those things, at least for a time. In other words, the kingdom is what brings them. And Israel didn't get the kingdom because they sinned under the old covenant and were prevented from having the kingdom for a time. Not forever, but for a time. So these two covenants work together in that sense. One gives reason for God to be just in holding off the other for a time. Why does he hold off one the Abrahamic covenant for a time? Why did he need the old covenant in order to give himself just cause for holding off access to the other covenant? What happens between those two moments? The church. It gives opportunity for God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. For if Israel had received their kingdom at the very beginning of this process when God first brought Messiah, nothing happens after that. There's no you and me. There's no kingdom for us. The kingdom would have started right away with Israel only. So what God has done is he has established a covenant in the terms of the Mosaic covenant, a covenant that had terms to it, conditions, which put Israel under certain curses, certain consequences for their disobedience, and that gives God just cause to hold them at bay from the kingdom they have been promised, at least for a time, making room for Gentiles. And then at some point he will come back to them, as we are reading now. This is the story, if you will, of how God ultimately comes back to Israel in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant when the kingdom arrives. Last week we studied the first step of that restoration, which was with the leadership, right? The shepherd who would lead God's people and 
uh, guard them as a proper shepherd should. And we also heard last week that it comes with a new covenant, a peace covenant. Not the new covenant, that, that's also coming for them. But it also now involves a new millennial covenant called the peace covenant. So we studied that in chapter 34. Secondly, we learned that Israel comes back to their land in peace and dwells there securely. That's coming today. Thirdly, we see the people will get their city back and their temple back, and God will dwell with them in that temple yet again. That is coming in future chapters. Collectively, these blessings all fulfill God's promises under the Abrahamic covenant. A people, a land, and blessing in that land, my dwelling with you in that land. Okay? I gave you a handout. I promised this last week because I know when I tried to provide some of this uh, structure to you last week. I know I could see it in your eyes. I lost all of you. So that's my fault. Here's your handout. Remember I said all of this is available online. You can download it later. Uh, I'm not going to talk much about the handout tonight. As you can see, it takes us all the way into later chapters. But I did the color coding and the little icons on the right as a way of helping you understand how these chapters relate. I want you to notice the pattern and then we'll move on. In the handout, notice that... There is a color in which, let's say the brown color in chapter 33, in which God says, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I'm going to prepare you for your blessing. And then in the green color that follows on whatever the topic is, he fulfills the promise to give the blessing. So the first two had to do with a shepherd, right? We saw last week, chapter 33 was when he said, prophets have to do what they're told. People have to do what they hear from the word of God. This is how you respond to a leader. And then he follows up by saying, now I'm going to give you a good shepherd. Tonight we're going to learn how God puts aside any competing claims to the land and then gives them the land. Next time in 37, you see how he resurrects a united and peaceful people group. And then in 38, uh, he shows how he defends them against somebody who would take away their peace. And then in 39, he shows how he makes his glory known to the Gentile nations. And then in 40 through 48, he shows you how he's going to make his glory known to Israel in their own nation, in their temple. So there's this back and forth play between these chapters as he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant through each of them. If you notice how I split up 38 and 39, it shows you that 38 and 39 are fulfilling different purposes in this process. What you should also notice is the entire context of everything in these chapters is in what period of time? Where is all of this happening? Where is Israel getting a peaceful land? Where are they all getting God living with them and dwelling with them? Where are they? It's all the millennial kingdom. It's all in the millennial kingdom because that's the entire topic here. There's no point in which he moves out of this topic. Now that may tell you already where I'm going in chapters 38 and 39, but what I want you to see is if you follow the context and you look at the structure, he never leaves the context of, of the millennial kingdom the whole time. We're talking now about the future state of Israel and how God restores all of these elements in the future state of Israel. All right? We'll get there later. I know you're already thinking, well, how is that going to work with what I've heard about 38 and 39? I don't know. We'll see. I have my ideas. All right. Let's move on. This week we're looking at the land restoration. You notice the little icons I used there to the right? That was just a way to remind you what each one deals with. So the first two have the king. That's, that's the leader. The next two is a, it's meant to be a picture of the land. So that's how the land gets established for Israel. The next two are a little crowd of people. That's how the people, remember Abraham was promised that he would have a posterity of, of people, so numerous you can't count them, right? That's part of this. And then finally, the little fire represents God's glory, that God would dwell among them, and he would be their God and they would be his people, okay? That's all the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. And now you see it all play out in these chapters. All right, let's look at the um, chapter we're starting now, chapter 35. At first glance, this chapter is going to sound a lot like a continuation of that section we went through before on Israel's enemies, where each enemy got judged. Remember that section? At first, in 35, as we get into it now, it's going to sound like we've just jumped back into that whole process again. But in this case, the, the judgment's against Edom. Now, we already covered a judgment against Edom in that earlier section. Hold that thought, because there's a reason why this prophecy appears here in the narrative and why it's not part of the earlier section on Israel's enemies being judged. Okay, let's go there. Chapter 35, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste your cities 
and you will become a desolation, then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you, since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. Okay, just starting here, let's set the scene. Here you have a chapter in which the Lord is denying any competing claims to the land of Israel in the days of the coming kingdom. All right, that's the backdrop here. Historically, Israel's been in conflict, probably since its origins, with all its neighbors over the land. But in the kingdom, Israel will have no enemies, we knew that already, and their land will be theirs exclusively. And to illustrate the coming blessing of the land, the Lord says, first, I'm going to judge the nation that has had the longest history of conflict with Israel over Israel's birthright. Edom was the nation, that today it's occupying present-day Jordan, southern Jordan. The people of Edom descended from whom? Esau. Esau was Jacob's twin brother. Esau was the older son being born first, and as such he had the initial birthright claim in Isaac's family. Earlier, the Lord had given Abraham and then Isaac after him a promise. And in that promise, he said he would have a great inheritance in the land of Canaan. He and his descendants would receive this inheritance. Now, I want you to think about the word just like you think of your own inheritance. It is physical. It is material. It belongs to someone you're related to. And it comes to you because of a death. All right, That's the idea of an inheritance. God prepared an inheritance for a family that he created out of one man. And he said, you will have an inheritance. All right? That promise, however, would not be fulfilled. That inheritance would not be his, God told him, until long after Abraham's day, long after Isaac's day, long after those men had died. Now that raises a bit of a conundrum, right? Because uh, you get your inheritance when someone else dies. But if you die before that person, you don't get that inheritance. That's the way we think, right? But God set it up so that the inheritance that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and their descendants was one that only came to these men and their descendants long after they had died. So in the meantime, what did these men have from God? They had a promise of that inheritance. That promise itself became the inheritance that they passed down in their own families. That we call the birthright. The right to receive the inheritance that God had promised to this line. From Abraham through Isaac and onward. As you probably know, Esau being the firstborn to Isaac, he had the initial right to that promise, to that birthright. But in the course of time, Esau sold that birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Which is what scripture tells us. Now that birthright included... The promise that Esau and his descendants, had it been his to keep, this is what it would have meant for him. It would have meant that him, he and his descendants would have received the land of Canaan as their inheritance. That was part of the birthright that God gave Abraham, part of the Abrahamic covenant. So we ask the question, why would Esau sell something so valuable for something so trivial? Well, the only reason, the only answer you can possibly have, Esau did not understand its value. Genesis says this, Genesis twenty five thirty one, But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So listen to that again. You've all heard this. I'm sure most of us anyway have heard this, and so it's familiar, but listen to it again. Jacob suggests to Esau, hey, you want the stew I've got? Okay, I'll make you a deal. Sell me your birthright. Esau readily agrees to what is patently a ridiculous exchange. He says, quoting Esau, he says, of what use is this birthright to a dying man? Now that statement tells you everything you need to know about why he sold his birthright. First, it says... He says he was about to die from lack of lunch. So we know that's hyperbola, right? Which means he's being flippant. He's being cavalier about something that is unmatched, solemn, and eternal. All right, so he doesn't understand it. And even more telling is this. He suggests 
that in this hyperbola of being near death, he suggests, well, what, what good would that birthright be for me anyway, that inheritance? What good would that inheritance be for me anyway? If I died now, I wouldn't get it. Or so he thought. Obviously, he wasn't really near death, but he made a point there that tells us what he thought about the birthright. He was exactly wrong. The birthright of Abraham and Isaac could only be received following death, not before death. So in reality, death didn't put an end to this particular birthright. Death was the means by which you would eventually obtain it. That is, in a resurrected life, that would be the only time in which it would be given to you. So what Esau says, in effect, is by his own words, he did not have faith in the promises of God. He did not believe that what God had said could come to him in that future resurrected form. He was thinking only in the simple sense of whatever my earthly father has would be mine. He has no concept of the bigger spiritual thing that God was offering through this. He had no faith in God's promise. So Jacob used his ignorance against him in a legitimate binding agreement. Sell it if you don't want it. Okay, fine. And in his foolishness, he sold it. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. See to it, speaking to the church now, he says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness bringing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." So, you know, obviously later he realized that there was some real value to this birthright, but by that time the die was cast, he couldn't change the deal. So he could not inherit the blessing at Isaac's death. We always give Jacob such a bad rap, and it's complete nonsense. If you'd like to know the real view of how you should understand that story, go study what's online. But in truth, Jacob just did what God called him to do. Against a father who conspired to give the birthright to the wrong son, and against a son who had no desire for it, no knowledge of it in the first place. Uh, It's what happens when you have parents who don't work together and fathers who don't follow the Lord. You get families doing all kinds of crazy things. Just that simple. So... God got the plan he wanted through a bunch of consequential means that shouldn't have had to happen, but in the end it went to the person that God intended. So Esau, after that moment, forevermore resented Jacob. So the story in Scripture makes clear Esau was the bad guy. But Esau, in his own mind, made Jacob out to be the thief and the bad guy. And not only Esau, but Esau's descendants... Edomites, which later become uh, one of the tribes of Arabs, they have forevermore thought that Israel has taken from them something that should have been theirs to begin with. So in chapter 35, the Lord says, He will put these so-called competing claims to rest once and for all. Verse 2, the Lord tells Ezekiel, I want you to set your face against Mount Seir. Now Mount Seir is the mountain range in Jordan that was part of Edom. And so this is an oracle against Edom. But notice earlier in the book when we studied the, the, the oracle against the enemies of Israel, which included Edom, in that earlier oracle he said to set his face against Edom specifically. Here now it's set your face against Mount Seir, which means Edom, but why in that different way? Why are we looking at the land? That's because we're talking now about land. The emphasis now is on the land. Not on the people, not on the nation so much, but on this competing claim. In other words, because Edom did not respect God's grant of land to Israel, they now, as penalty, will forfeit their own land as well. They don't get what they wanted, and they don't even get what they got. Verse 3, the Lord says, He will make their land desolate. Again, this is in the kingdom. Verse 4, we learned this, by the way, if you go back and look at what we learned back then, you remember that the penalty for Edom was desolation throughout all of the kingdom. Okay? Verse 4, he says, He will devastate the city so that they will know He is the Lord. All of this is coming to Edom because they had this everlasting enmity against Israel over what was originally their own mistake, their forefathers' choice to sell a birthright. So Esau hated Jacob. The only time in the Bible that you see Esau and Jacob getting along for any length of time at all is when they have to bury their father. That's just a moment. That hatred continues on even to today. And then the Lord mentions specifically in the text that I read a moment in which Edom assisted Babylon in their attack against Israel as God was judging the people of Israel by Babylon. And we don't know exactly what they did. Maybe they helped in the attack. Maybe they helped find refugees or hideaway Jews and bring them to the Babylonians. In short, what, it, what the Lord says, though, is they did not hate the bloodshed of their closest relatives. You know, Israel and, and Edomites, they're the closest relatives of each other. 
Just twins separated them, right? They didn't hate the bloodshed they saw going against Israel. They participated in it. And so God says, you'll know your own bloodshed. Verse 7. He says, I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns. I will fill its mountains with its slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation, and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, These two nations and these two lands will be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all your revilings which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard it. Thus says the Lord God, As all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. Notice that? In the midst of the world rejoicing because of the kingdom, they will have nothing. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So a lot of this is somewhat repetitive based on what we heard in the earlier oracle. We know that the land is designated for desolation, right? Ironically, we saw in Hebrews that Esau was crying over the loss of Israel's land when you know he sold his birthright. Now, historically, what we know is that he should have been worried about his own family's land because now that's the consequence. His family's land now is desolate, and it comes to pass because of their greed. And Edom's attitude toward Israel's land, of course, is not unique. Uh, You can go to any Arab nation today, and they have the same general desire to take Israel's land. In truth, though, they don't care very much about the land. They only care about the people. And your proof of this is the fact that until 1948, they had the land, and they did nothing with it. They couldn't have cared less about it. Suddenly Israel's got it, now they care about it. Well, it's because they want Israel out. They just don't want Israel. In any event, why is Edom singled out here in this chapter that's dealing with Israel's return to the land, it's because they become a poster child. Edom is basically the poster child for all of those who feel the same. And as a result of that desire among all of them, Israel's never had security in their land. They've been there at times, they're there now, but security, not in the sense that we enjoy. We enjoy a level of security here that's that's far different than what they enjoy. And even ours isn't true permanent security, but comparatively, it's a huge difference between us and them. And What God is saying is in the kingdom, they are going to have this perfect, unchallenged peace without any enemies whatsoever. And they have not had that historically because of countries like Edom. And so what God is saying through one, he's basically saying to all, that Israel is going to see anything that could challenge their security in the land put to an end. Because that's what the kingdom brings. So their envy and their anger is their opportunity for God to judge them and to demonstrate that his decrees will not be challenged. Now think about this from the perspective of when it was spoken. This is in Ezekiel's day. Obviously they're in exile. They've been taken out of the land. This is definitely Israel's low point. All right? And receiving this prophecy in Ezekiel's day would have sounded encouraging, but it would have been very hard to believe for the Jew who's heard it. I mean, think about what we just heard. You will be in your land. Your enemies will be totally gone. Edom will be desolate. You will not have to worry about security. At this moment, what was actually happening? What we just read. The nation of Edom was saying to itself, their land is desolate. It's ours now. We will go take its food. We We will make it our spoil. That was what was actually happening. He says that in verse 12. That was actually happening in their day. And God's following it up by saying, well, it's not going to last very long. Not historically, not in terms of eternal timelines. He says, they have just become arrogant. They're multiplying their words against God. I love that line. Here's what he's saying. While Edom is down in the land thinking they own the land that Israel is now vacated, and God's up with Ezekiel saying, they're going to be desolate. They are multiplying their words against God, which is to say that everything that had been said in previous generations against Israel and against God was now being compounded by the generation that watched Israel's own judgment by God and claimed it was their opportunity, instead of seeing it from a godly point of view and understanding it was truly a sign of what God can do to ungodliness. Right? If they had had eyes to see it properly, it should have invoked fear of God in them. Rather, they took it as license 
to further persecute Jewish people and the, the land and, and malign God's name. God says, I'm going to deal with you according to your own words. Summing it up in verse 15, he says, While everyone else is rejoicing in the time of the kingdom, you will be desolate. And notice the, the term inheritance there in verse 15. Do you see that? He uses the term inheritance. That's one of the clues in this chapter to tell you that this chapter on uh, Edom's destruction has been placed here to make the point that this is Israel's inheritance, not yours. Never has been, never will be, and you will not obtain it in the end. They will have it in peace. Regardless of whether Israel is in the land or, as it was the case in this moment, outside the land, it's still their land. Even after AD 70, And until 1948, when Israel was not in the land during that long period of time, it was Israel's inheritance. It never stopped being their inheritance. And that's what he's saying to Edom in this moment. Later, we see Israel scattered, of course, following other invasions, and these words still stand. All right? So the people of Israel have an inheritance in the land, regardless of whether they're there or not. One day they will be there. One day they will have it all, which leads us to chapter 36. And we spend more time on this chapter tonight than we did 35, obviously. Verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you, aha, and the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, for good reason they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side, that you would become a possession of the rest of the nations. And you have been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the ravines and to the valleys, to the desolate wastes and to the forsaken cities, which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are around about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession, with wholehearted joy and with the scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. That's kind of a long intro. And here's what he just said. First of all, it indicates that this is a chapter about the land. Whose land is it? Right? He opens by saying, and notice the whole chapter is written to the land. He's speaking to the land. That's another indication we're looking at land as the focus here. So he speaks as if the land is personified and can hear him. Well, I guess it can hear him. But as if it was a person, the Lord says, there's a reason why Israel has left the land. There's a reason why it has become desolate. There's a reason why your enemies are now occupying it. And he acknowledges all of that. But the Lord tells Ezekiel to explain to the land, here's why this is happening. And the reason is Israel's disobedience, right? That's the whole first half of the book. We know that. But the point is, it's not a sign to Israel's neighbors to rejoice or to take over or to think that Israel's gone or to think that God's going back on his promise or that they can have the land. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Despite what the Lord is doing to his own people, they yet still will get the land. They are not done for. And that was the thing he wants to emphasize as if speaking to the land itself. Don't worry. Things aren't gone wrong. This is something necessary but temporary. In verses 4 and 5, the Lord says, "In, in jealousy he took offense to the enemy's gleeful possession of the land. And this has to be a source of some encouragement for those who were in exile, right? They're hearing this directly from the mouth of the prophet. They're hearing the Lord talking in terms that makes them feel like, well, I guess we really aren't out altogether. Sitting in exile hasn't changed the big picture. The land is not lost forever. Verse 6. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath, because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. But you, O mountains of Israel, you who put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will come soon. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, All the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly, and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, 
to walk on you and possess you so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved your nation of children. Therefore, you will no longer devour men and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. I will not let you hear insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord God. I love the way he talks to the land about it. It just kind of makes it feel different, doesn't it? So to the land, he says, starting at the top there, I'm going to avenge you of the insults of the nations. So all the times you've heard anyone today, yesterday, whenever, speaking ill against Israel about the land, about God's purpose and his people in the land, and it's just made you mad, and you just wish there was a way you could tell them, read the Bible, don't say those things. Well, trust me, it's all coming back on their heads. In effect, every time a nation or we could say an individual, has spoken an insult against Israel or made a claim on their land, it has only served to reinforce the Lord's determination to show them otherwise. And the Lord says he will defeat those lies and those presumptuous claims by making Israel's claim to the land that much more sure. And in verse 7 he says, I swear, I love the, when you see, when you see the Lord swearing, right, he can swear by no other higher name than his own, right? So he swears that the nations around Israel will endure their own insults. What Israel's enemies have wished upon God's people from the past, they themselves will suffer the same. Not only will Edom and other enemies be judged, but God's faithfulness to his promises will come to pass all the more certainly. In verse 9, he says the land will be cultivated and sown, meaning it will once again blossom to provide for the people of Israel. It will need to blossom, he says, because the land is going to be filled again with all the house of Israel. Verse 11, the Lord said he will multiply the people. They will increase in the land. The land will be inhabited as never before. And you notice he makes that emphasis, all Israel, all of them, which precludes us from seeing this fulfilled in some earlier time. It's forcing us to look at a period in history in which there's no exclusions anymore. And that limits us to the future, to the kingdom. There's just never been any time since then, right? All right. Then he goes on, he says, the land is going to be treated so well, it will be better treated than it's ever been treated before. That, again, is a clear reference to kingdom life. And this is where we start to move in this direction of talking more about life in the kingdom. You know, life in the kingdom in the land is going to be entirely different for Israel than it's been when Israel has occupied the land in past times or even today. In a sense, we can say that Israel has occupied the promised land up till now and and up till the kingdom in the same way that Abraham did in his own day temporarily and in a partially fulfilled fashion. Partial fulfillment of the promises of God. Only in the kingdom will they receive the fullness of the promises concerning the land and otherwise. And only then will it be eternal. Notice in verse 12, the Lord says, the people of Israel, God's people, will walk on and possess the land. It will be a complete possession. It will be their inheritance. And then he starts issuing a series of nevers. Never again will the land be bereaved of its children. Now, be careful here, because you have to remember, we're talking to the land itself. The land is personified. So, in verse 12, when he says that they will not see children bereaved, or parents bereaved of children, the reference to children here is not a reference to human children. All right, It's spoken metaphorically, where the land is the parent, and that means the entire people of Israel are the children. The children of the land, if you will. And you can see that I'm right by looking at verse 13. It's clearly that way in verse 13. The next verse, the Lord repeats what Israel's enemies have been saying about the land of Israel. Israel's enemies looked at the history of Israel, and they saw how Israel was you know, routinely being disciplined by the Lord, allowed to be attacked by Philistines and by various ites, Canaanites of various kinds, and later by major powers like the Babylonians and so on. And they keep looking at this pattern and they say to themselves, the land of Israel devours its children. All right, now it's referencing the people of God being killed on their own land. I mean, think about it. This is their home territory and it's the most unsafe place on earth for Israel. In, their, in terms of the way history has played out for them, they'd be better off moving away from Israel, it would seem. Because when they're in the land, they seem to be getting into trouble all the time. So the enemies noticed this and the enemies said, you know, their own land devours them. Israel's enemies saw that. Of course, what was going on was a direct result of their sin. It's not proof that the land was bad. It's proof that God is true. It was proof that God exists. Nevertheless, the Lord says, nah, the land's not going to devour its people anymore. 
Moreover, the people will not hear, he says, the insults of neighbors or suffer disgrace any longer. It's no longer going to be, I love this line, the land will no longer be a cause for the people to stumble. That's an interesting line. The land will no longer be a cause for Israel to stumble. This is, again, another reference to the amazing differences in life between what what it will be like to live there in the kingdom versus what it has been like to live there ever since. Now, to begin to illustrate what I mean by these amazing differences, we're going to leave Ezekiel for just a little while tonight. And that's going to require you going flipping in your Bible just a bit. I don't want you to miss some of the things you're going to see. Go to Isaiah. It's just a short distance in your Bible sooner than Isaiah. I'm sorry, sooner than Ezekiel. Isaiah 65. And Isaiah 65, 17. And this is one of a couple passages we'll look at. I just want, for, for some of you this is not new, but for others that may be, and I want to make sure we're all understanding what I mean. Certainly no one prophet gives us the full view of the kingdom. So it's helpful to cross-reference. Isaiah is telling us here a little bit about life in the kingdom. And you'll see in Isaiah's commentary here things that uh, dovetail with what you've already heard from Ezekiel. So Isaiah sixty-five seventeen, He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of the blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. There's a lot we can do here that I'll do some of, not all of. If you want the full teaching of this, I'd send you to the Revelation study. But in the meantime, let's just do a few things that that work with what we're looking at in Ezekiel. Starting with the context, he says at the outset of that passage that this is about the new heavens and new earth. Now that immediately will draw your mind to Revelation 21, because John uses a similar phrase when he starts to describe the eternal order that follows the kingdom that comes after the kingdom is over after the thousand year kingdom is run to its end then we're told that the heavens and the earth pass away entirely and god creates a new universe literally and that new universe is called a new heavens and a new earth Uh, and so seeing that phrase here again in isaiah might make you think well he's talking about the same thing right well you know just because you use the same phrase twice doesn't necessarily mean you're talking about the same thing Sometimes things can be similar that doesn't make them the same. In this case, it's one of those situations because the details and the context of chapter 21 of Revelation versus chapter 65 of Isaiah are very different. The context and the circumstances and the details in each are so different, in fact, that they don't line up, telling us that even though Isaiah uses this phrase, he means it with respect to the kingdom, even though John uses the phrase in respect to something that comes after the kingdom. And as I said, don't let that worry you. It just means these words are not so specific that they can't be generalized and used in different ways. Why would he say, for example, that the time following tribulation, and speaking of the kingdom, why would he call that a new heavens and new earth? Well, because the earth is a serious fixer-upper after the tribulation. First, the heavens and earth are greatly damaged by the events of tribulation. If you go look at what's written about that time, the stars fall from the sky. Well, there's your heavens needing to be made repaired. Uh, The sun and moon have been changed. The land and the seas of the earth are all destroyed. So if we're going to have a heaven and an earth that's occupiable for the thousand years, God's got to make them new again. But not in the sense of replacing, in the sense of repairing. It's still the same universe that we have now. At least it will be until John says it's replaced after the end of the thousand years. Secondly, even though the kingdom is on this earth, it's still a very different place. And in that respect, it's also a new heavens and a new earth. It's just fundamentally different. 
the life we live here will be very different. It's on this earth. Gravity still applies, as far as I can tell. We still have to eat, breathe, and live, probably even sleep. But it's still very different beyond those basics. You can see some of those differences here. Again, Isaiah sixty-five seventeen. he says, The former things will not be remembered. What he's saying in general is that the patterns of life, and now it's specific to Israel, but he can generalize it to the world, the patterns of life for Israel have completely changed. What Israel knew before is no longer their reality. Across the board. Their religious life, their social life, their government life, their nature, the, na- the, the nature, this, this, the uh, mother nature, if we want to use that term, nature on earth is completely different. The creation is completely different. Their bodies are different. Their spirit awareness is different. Their connection to Christ is different. The temple is different. The city is different. Everything is different. Ezekiel just said the land that Israel is, was in would no longer treat Israel as it did before. It would no longer be a cause for stumbling. It would be better than it had ever been before. These are all references to this change. And you start to see the details of it going down the list. Verse 18. The land would now be for Israel's rejoicing. The people would exist. Think about this. This is not meant in a hallmark card sort of sentiment. This is meant literally. The people in the land will be in perpetual gladness. What a contrast from Israel's typical situation. It says the Lord too would be glad with his people. So there will no longer be any sound of Israel crying or weeping. Can you contemplate what kind of life that is for just a moment? Just think about that for a second. I mean, think about how far that is from our reality right now. Even if you're having a pretty good day, think about it though in these terms of never and always and forever. The difference between what you and I know is real life And this real life that's coming, the difference between those two points, that's sin. That is the effect of the fall. Everything that makes the difference between those two is because of Adam and all that's come from Adam. And when I see him, I'm going to tell him a little bit about what it... No, just kidding. We've all done our part to contribute. But the point is, sin is the distinction between those two points. What's so interesting about that, it shows you how much has been done by that sin. Sin has moved the world so far from where it started that now that starting point seems unrealistic, seems unachievable, seems cartoonish and our world seems real it's going to flip when we get to the kingdom god created us to know the experience of the kingdom and the kingdom experience mirrors the edenic experience eden was like the kingdom will be to an extent and so today our lives are defined by sin such that we can literally not imagine what life would be like without it And yet, it is that life which is what God intended and will reestablish for us in the kingdom. In verse 20, we're told, in a bit of a a mysterious way here, that infants won't die. There'll be no death either from old age. Now you're asking me, why are there babies at all? That's another topic for another day. But just let me put aside for the moment, though, you will not be having babies. You and I will be glorified. We will not be married or having children. But some people in the kingdom will be. And he says here that there won't be infant mortality, there won't be old death from old age, but there will be death at age 100 by those who are thought to be accursed. In other words, death is limited to a single age. Only at the age of 100 can someone die, and it would only be because that person is without faith. They're unbelieving. So unbelievers all die at age 100. And you think, well, that's even weirder. Yes, go go listen to the Revelation study. We deal with the, the details of that. But we don't have time tonight. I bet there's a question coming up later. Anyway, now apart from those strange details, the everyday life of the kingdom, though, still seems to be reasonably recognizable. He says here people will build houses, plant fields. That implies I've got to eat. That implies I've got to have somewhere to put my head down at night. That implies I have a, a place that is mine, that I go back to every night. You know, I don't just wander the earth. I'm not with wings floating on clouds. You know, it's real life. I eat the produce of the field. I build things I need. I wear them out, it says. No, and he, he says there's no worry about someone building and someone planting only to have someone else come along and take it from you, which is the normal experience. You know, think about that. You think, well, yeah, people steal things. Well, yeah, even if they don't steal it, you're not taking it with you, right? At some point, you're separated from what you own because of death. Nothing is yours forever. Nothing. When we're young, we think we have it forever. And then when we get old, we realize we had nothing. And you know, we kind of go through that transition. Here, you won't have that problem at all. Everything you have is yours forever. And you'll wear it out because no one's ever going to take it from you. Notice again that it says here, people live out their days like the lifetime of a tree. Your house and your possession won't outlast you. You will outlast them. 
That's what happens when you live forever. You outlast things. And it's not because they're made cheaply either. All right. Moreover, it says, No one will worry about reproducing in vain or giving birth only to see the death of their children on some future day. But that is not a promise of childbirth for those who are glorified. What is, what is being spoken there is of the fact that there will be no reproducing at all for those who are of Israel. Because, he says, we are all offspring of the Lord. We will be there and our descendants. You notice that? What he's saying is, there's no need for the procreation of humanity to fill the nation of Israel with its citizens. They all walk in on day one, them and all their descendants. And they will not have to worry about any of the, the birth process and the calamity that comes with that on our, in our life. They're just not going to have to worry about that at all. Israel walks in glorified. Israel walks in with everyone. All right? That's why Israel is able to keep the commandments, because they're all glorified. They're going to live in a place and a time when life is fully, completely, and unendingly satisfying. And at the end of verse 23, the Lord assures Israel that it will be for her and all her descendants. Probably one of the greatest comforts of the kingdom age to come, not just for Israel, but for any of us, that is to say that all who share our faith in Christ will be there with us. That will lack no one. All right, finally, notice... And I think this is one of the more interesting aspects of the kingdom. Our spiritual state of mind. Verse 24. Isaiah says that even as we call out to Christ, he will hear us and answer us instantly. Even as we're talking. Even as we're still speaking, we get our response. Now, Christ, and we'll learn this later in the book of Ezekiel, but just as a bit of a preview, Christ is not going to be physically near you at any point in the kingdom. Christ occupies the temple and stays there for the entirety of the temple of, of the time we're in the kingdom. So he is in the Holy of Holies in a gigantic temple on top of a gigantic mountain in the middle of Jerusalem. We are not there. So you will not see him, but you don't need to see him because in our glorified state, it appears that we communicate freely with him and instantaneously with him. Think of it as your prayer life now, just with superpowers, just... Instant communication. He hears us instantly. He responds immediately. We understand him perfectly. That's how the world will work because in the roles we will play in his government, which is something we get from other places in Scripture, that there is a government, that we are in his government, we now understand by this term how we would work with him in that government. We don't have to wait for the bureaucracy to send an email and then have it sent in triplicate and then move down the chain to us. And then we just instantly receive our orders and instructions from Christ and he instantly hears our requests. All right. Not only will the people then of the kingdom be fundamentally different, so will nature itself. That's the last bit of what Isaiah said. The Lord starts to restore the world back to the state, something similar to what existed during the time of Adam and woman in the garden. Before the sin of Adam entered the world, without sin there would have been no death, right? Sin is the cause of death. So before Adam's sin, nothing was dying, nothing that lived. And in biblical terms, the things that have life have blood. So we're not talking about plants. Uh, we're talking about animals and humans. So there was no death for man, there was no death for animals, which means animals weren't eating other animals, which means there was no predator-prey relationships. All right? So that means everybody was a vegetarian. We were, they were. Nothing could be killed to be eaten, so nothing but plants were being eaten. After the fall, as sin entered, death entered, and as death entered, there was a change in nature over time. It wasn't long after the fall that God permitted man to eat animals after the flood, and also he developed or he instituted predator-prey relationships with animals. Animals were given an instinctive fear of men, which translates also to a fear of each other. And as a result, you see what we now take for granted. But that became something God instituted as a result of sin. It wasn't the normal state. Verse 25, Isaiah says, well, now we get back to where we started, the wolf and the lamb grazing together. Obviously, wolves don't eat grass today, not normally. Uh, if a lamb is within sight of a wolf, both are running. One after the other. Uh, but in the future, they graze together, no regard for one another, predator-prey relationships aren't there, animals don't kill, etc. Notice at the end of the verse, we're told these animals will do no harm in all God's mountain. That refers, the mountain there is metaphoric. It refers to all of God's kingdom. So in all of God's kingdom, no animals will be doing harm. Elsewhere in Isaiah, and this is just one little complimentary passage from Isaiah 11. You can page back there if you care to. Isaiah 11, verse 6. It says, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So it's the same idea again, just more detail, but here again, animals living without concern for each other, eating vegetation only. Even a young child could play with a deadly snake, it won't be a problem because there's no uh, enmity between man and animals anymore. That's what's coming for Israel. That's what's coming for the kingdom. And as reassuring as all that had to have been for Israel, hearing these things from their prophets, it was probably hard for them to understand why God was promising them so much in all of these wonderful ways, and yet at the time they're sitting in exile as slaves of an enemy nation. There's a bit of incongruity there, you know? You're saying wonderful things to me, And yet, look where I am right now. It's the same sense you get from people today who, when you tell them God's sovereign, they say, why would a loving God do that? It's the same short-sighted, immature understanding that drives both those questions. So in the rest of chapter 36, what the Lord does now is He explains, and we're going to go through this part pretty quick, what He does is explain why they are in exile and how to reconcile that with what He's doing in the land. Verse 16, He says, So the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... When the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman and her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. All right, this is just quick background. I don't need to repeat the teaching through it because you know with the history here, this is all back to what we've studied in the first half of the book. Israel did bad things. God said, I'm going to take you outside the land. Here we are. But here's the issue. God has said the land caused them to stumble. We saw that earlier. Now he's saying, when you were in the land, you defiled it. So I put you outside the land. Right? And while they were outside the land, he says, you've done even greater indignity there, because verse 20, he says, the people witnessed the fact that I sent you outside the land, that I banished you, and they ridiculed me, the Lord, for having banished my own people from the land I gave them. Right? Sort of what Moses said when he said, Lord, if you kill your people out here in the desert, they're going to say you took them out of Egypt just to kill them. Right? It's the same kind of thing being said now. So all of these dots, as I call them here, they all lead to a very uh, obvious but unavoidable dilemma and that is if israel is when they're in the land if being in the land causes them to stumble if it if it's opportunity for sin if that's the way it works well then if the sinning in the land causes the lord to disperse them well then how can the lord put them back in the land and not expect that cycle to just keep going because when they're in the land this is what happens when they're in the land the land causes them to stumble because the land is so good to the people The land makes it easy for them to enjoy the things that God has given them in blessing, and they took advantage of it in their sin by turning it to idolatry. Their security, their prosperity, their opportunity turned to... It's like when you give a kid too much of anything, right? What what happens? Bad things will sometimes happen, because when you spoil a child, bad things happen. In a sense, that's the, the idea here. The land caused them to stumble. It was too good for them. So God sends them out. And now he says, but in the future, I'm going to put you in the land, and you're going to be good. Well, wait a minute. What's going to change between now and then? Otherwise, I just see the pattern continuing. Well, verse 21, the Lord says, I'm going to have to make a change to protect my holy name because I can't have this continue and my name stay holy. Verse 22, he says, here's how I'm going to stop the cycle. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. All right, well, here's the solution, obviously. 
he will do what they can't. And this passage is obviously paralleling Jeremiah 31, when you hear of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. He doesn't say that here, doesn't call it the new covenant, but it's alluding to the very same thing, a promise of God giving Israel a new heart, a new spirit, the capacity to obey rules and regulations that heretofore they had not been able to obey. And the Lord says, I'm going to do this for my sake. Not for yours. It's not some reward. It's for my own namesake, because I've made a covenant with you as a people, and I've said I'm going to put you in this land, and as we keep going through this cycle of me putting you in and then kicking you out, it just makes me look bad. My words. But that's what he's saying. And by the way, God could not avoid the connection to Israel. The word Israel, El, is the word for God in Hebrew. So everywhere that Israel went, they were proclaiming themselves to be in covenant with God, and God was shamed by their behavior. So the Lord says, I'm going to act now in a way that's going to make sure this stops. Um, by the way, you can make a little preaching, and I won't for the sake of time, but we could make a nice little preaching here about how we share the same obligation as we call ourselves Christians, Christians, right? We carry his name in a different way, and when we do the same things, we have the same problem, right? And uh, he has the same obligation to protect his name in our life too, which comes out a different way, but there's still discipline, right? All right, let's just move on though, because I know we want to get to the text. To the larger question, how does the Lord stop the bad pattern? Verse 24, it starts with a regathering. Remember, this is the regathering after tribulation that leads us into the kingdom, because this is a kingdom passage. This is talking about life in the kingdom, so we know it's that regathering. Immediately after that regathering, the Lord says, I will move to change the very nature of my people. I will cleanse them, spiritually speaking. They will no longer do idolatry. They will be cleansed in such a way that they have a new heart and a new spirit, not one of stone, but one of flesh, that is a heart that is responsive, soft, obedient, not hard, not rebellious. Okay, And he does it, he says, by putting his spirit in them as well, causing national spiritual rebirth. Obviously, this process is no different than the one we've experienced personally. There's nothing mysterious about this in the sense that you've already experienced it yourself. He's promising for Israel what every believer gets by faith in Christ, okay? But what makes this so remarkable is that this is a promise of national regeneration. We were regenerated individually because of our individual faith. This is a promise that says every Jew will have that like faith such that they all get regenerated all at once, all together. I'm not saying that the process is different for them individually than it is for us. It's the same for them individually. What I'm saying is it happens in mass. It happens all at once for all of them, as opposed to waiting for individual Jews to come along and decide to believe in Jesus. God skips that step. He brings faith to all of them simultaneously, pours out His Spirit, gives them all a new heart. All Israel comes to faith. Bam. So that they all walk into the kingdom with one heart to do as He commands them to do. The effect of this spiritual revival will be a nation that, he says, can follow their statutes and commandments. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying that in the kingdom, Israel will be perfectly sinless. That's the only way you do all the law, right? That's the only way I could say, you will keep my commandments, you will keep my statutes. You know, If he means it absolutely, and he does mean it absolutely, it can't happen unless you're perfect. And you can't be perfect unless you're sinless. And you can't be sinless unless you've been glorified. Glorification is the, the result of a process that Paul says includes justification. So they can't be glorified unless they've been justified at an earlier point, coming to faith in Christ. So what we're saying is, you're seeing the end effect of the national regeneration of Israel by faith in Christ, and the walking into the kingdom in a glorified state. All Israel will be glorified, all Israel will be in the land. Now when I say all, who do I mean? Do I mean all who've ever lived? Do I mean all who've ever been born? No. That's not the expectation of Scripture. It's speaking more to all who are available to God in that moment. Again, we'll come back to that for the sake of time later. In fact, we'll probably pick up next week right at this point. What we need to understand for them tonight is that the believers among Israel, the remnant, who die prior to the kingdom, like a Jew who died in Abraham's day, a Jew who might die even today, who's part of the church, they have the same future as a church believer would today, right? Their, their body goes in the grave, their soul goes to be with Jesus, later they get resurrected, and then they walk into the kingdom as a glorified saint, Okay? The ones that are being talked about here in Ezekiel, the ones who will get the new heart, the new spirit, and so on, those aren't the same people because those people will have already received those things prior to the moment that we're discussing here. This is the moment at the outset of the kingdom. This is the moment in which he says, I regather you after the tribulation. Then after regathering you, I put this heart in you. Remember? That's the sequence. 
Those aren't the believers of yesteryear. Those are people who are alive on the earth at the end of tribulation, who are there in the moment, and yet not yet believing. These are the sheep, if you will, of Matthew 25. These are the ones that are collected by the angels from the four corners of the world and brought together, given a new heart. They are the sheep in that point, and they are Israel moving into the kingdom. They are the all Israel that Paul talks about in Romans when he says, uh, Romans 11.25, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now he's speaking about all who are alive on earth. And listen, he qualifies it so you know who all Israel is. He says, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it's speaking of the second coming of Christ, coming from Zion, from Zion in heaven, to deliver national conversion to all remaining Jews on earth who are alive in that time. They then join the kingdom. The Lord says, I pour out my spirit on them. I pour out cleansing water, so to speak, so that they would all glorify God in their faith. That's how he can say, I can put you in your land again without fear that we go back to the cycle of you sinning and me kicking you out. Because I'm going to put you in this time in an entirely new way. A way that allows you to live there sinlessly, to live there glorified, in other words, and serve me without concerns. Never to suffer any curse or discipline again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, just a lot, uh, so much in your text, Father, so much in your word, it never ends, it never ceases to amaze me, Father, how much you can find in a small passage of what you've written, Father, and tonight was no exception. I pray, Father, that you would uh, clarify for all of us the deep things that have been rushed through a little tonight, and that you would uh, settle it in our hearts, and then in weeks to come, clarify it, and let us begin to understand these things. It's taken us our entire life to understand what we know of this world How long will it take us to understand a kingdom that is so different? We can just begin and enjoy the process. Thank you, Father, for giving it to us. And bring us back next week. Bring us others who care to study with us. Let us learn together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.